Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the podcast. Coming up today, the GM closure. More on that and how it impacts other industries. The U.S. president's take on all of this. Alberta and Ontario battling over booze and the fentanyl crisis in Canada and who is making money off it. It's all coming up. Thanks for listening. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. How does the GM closure announcement of yesterday impact other industries? It was it was interesting when we heard this information come over the weekend. Uh, obviously, m- most were shocked and, and blindsided by this. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I- a deeper dive, many could see this coming. Uh, that being said, is there anything that can be done about it? Is what about the other industries that are surrounding uh, the industry? And is this a turning point for this industry in Ontario? Uh, let's uh, bring in Dr. Peter Warian, Senior Research Fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs, Public Policy, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. So is this a turning point for Ontario? Is this a turning point for the auto industry in this country? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a directional turning point. I mean, we've got the announcement of the closure in uh, 2019, but that's a year away. Now, a closure of big plant to that is going to reduce the amount of steel. There's no doubt about it. But we've got a year to adjust to that, and lots might happen. Um, the bigger signal, I think, is two, though. General Motors did say that they lost a billion dollars last year because of Trump's t- tariffs. Those are words, their words, not mine. Would that mean they might have made a different kind of a decision? Would they have made a decision that gave people more time to adjust? We may never know, but you can't ignore that factor. What a, thing, sorry, go I'm ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, the, go ahead. The, the other thing is, no doubt, long-term, over the next 10 years, you're going to change towards more EVs, AVs, different, these new lightweight uh, cars. But those are all steel. But they're a different kind of steel. So also, you may know that the new Tesla, the next three, they switched out, in, out of aluminum into steel. But these are new steels, these high-end, high-strength steels, and not everybody has adjusted to that yet. So um, this is difficult news, but I think it's a, it's, it's not a gate going up and down, but it's, it's a strategic shift. That means these new steels, uh, uh, that you're, if you're a stamper or you're a service center, you've got to adapt to this stuff. Um, and that may be the longer-range lesson. So the fact that uh, there's plants closing in the United States and Canada, d- does that does that as well hold up to the tariff uh, argument? Well, I, I, again, we can't get inside the heads of, or I can't get inside the heads of the car companies. But eighty percent of a char- of what goes or more of what is in a car if yeah, you buy it right. is made in the supply chain, mm-hmm. and there's stuff going back and forth across the border. So what, it's obviously going to be a pressure on the steel companies and the auto companies. But the supply chain is where I think this thing is going to be won or lost. Hmm. So where does this leave uh, uh, cities like Hamilton and, and steel suppliers as such as this, as I guess the rippling effect is felt? Well, um, uh, one, I've done studies on this stuff. If only about eight, to, if you're out there and you're a stamper or somebody else, you know, fabricating, bashing steel around. Only about 8 to 10% of those companies right now can do it. Now, they need help in doing it. They need help from the CanMet lab in Hamilton, which is hugely important in this. Uh, the universities, the colleges, as well as the steel companies. So everyone's going to have to all hands on deck, but uh, I'm somewhat less pessimistic than some people are. 
Does this situation say more about General Motors as a company than it does about the health of the auto industry? Um, well, both are probably true. General Motors has been slower off the mark on these changes um, uh, than others. The new direction, though, is going to be these new lightweight steels. And that, Hamilton is good at this stuff, um, but they've got to change their vehicle mix. Uh, and that means these, they say they're going to come up with all these new models that are electric and autonomous cars, that sort of stuff. Good. All those are pretty steel intensive. So we have to match, you know, get everybody on the same page. Um, I think it does raise questions about General Motors. And this, I, I don't want to go beat it to death, but they did, in a, you know, they did say yesterday, the press conference, they lost a billion dollars because of steel's the disruptive impact of, of, of uh, Trump's steel tariff. Uh, uh, you know, his, his tariff. If you had that billion dollars, you might make better and more... Uh, uh, integrated decision. So you would think that that for them that justifies moving product or assembly from Canada and the United States to other places. Well, I think it's it's um it uh, it was a tipping point I think for them. Now you Mm. Have to ask them. Interesting but, point. You said it's a tipping point. Are we delaying the obvious here? You know, it was interesting. I so, I, I had said that. You know, yesterday watching um, uh, the press co- uh, press conference with Unifor, that uh, uh, you know they wanted yeah. they they wanted everything kept open until the end of the deal. The deal expires in 2020, so theoretically we're there uh, anyway. Is this is this a rude awakening for the auto industry? Well, it is a rude awakening of a kind, but the general direction. You know, the fully electric cars are probably 10 years away in, mm-hmm. in our number. In between, we're going to have all these hybrids. So there's lots of intermediate steps we can do on this. I think the pressures they've been under probably um, um, hurried up. You know, if you and I said, okay, I, I, I've just lost a billion dollars. How, how am I going to adapt? I'm going to yeah. uh, jump on the accelerator, right? So what about Donald Trump's reaction to this? Uh, you know, he, he was quoted er, earlier on in his campaign, well, not after the campaign, after being elected, saying the jobs were coming back. Ohio hit hard. I mean, there's places in, in the United States that have closures as well. How does he react to this? And he said he's putting pressure on them. D- does that change anything? I don't think it changes the long-term direction. I, we may see some... Uh, politics in Ohio or Lordstown, Ohio or something about some individual decisions because we know in his own mind he never can, never can do anything wrong. I think there's going to be fewer Americans. I mean, there's estimates out there that the Trump tariff will cost a million dollars, or excuse me, a million jobs over a five-year period. And he takes no responsibility for that. Is it only a matter of time before that's the obvious, or is this the first indicator of that? Well, I think that um, they always say you start, generals say you start with skirmishes, then you have battles, and then you have a war. I think we're somewhere between the skirmishes and the battle. Oh my! So, uh, are, are we? Should Ontario be fear, fearful that other companies are thinking about the same? Obviously, Ford, Honda, Toyota, all build product here as well. Absolutely. There's more to come on this, but how you do it and over what time period really matters to people. And communities. So is this an opportunity for Ontario to keep its position within the auto industry, but, you know, obviously with a different template? It is, but it's, um, 
nobody's going to have a free lunch out of a no change. It's going to be a change for everybody. And obviously, uh, the union's upset in what's happening. You can understand how, how the city the city of Oshawa is feeling and, and those in, in uh, areas around that and, and that are involved in this industry. Is there anything unions can do or government can do at this point? Well, I mean, the, the union, to give them credit, the last, uh, uh, in the last labor negotiations, they made $500 million in concessions to support R&D and new technology investments. Well, is that just blown away? You can see why they're upset. Yeah. They were trying to contribute constructively to the future because unions are usually you know, accused of doing the goal line stand on the old stuff. Right. Well, they put $500 million of their own, out of their own members' pockets on the line, and it looks like it could have been blown away. Uh, obviously, that and the bailout, you can understand why people are, are feeling the way that they are. Should governments be bailing out? Was the bailout a bad idea? I think the bailout is a good idea. But now we're back in another part of the cycle, and um, what are we going to do? Everybody's going to have to contribute to that. Is there another? But si- I, I don't think you can just. I don't think you can just do the goal line stand over the old old product line in um, yeah. in Oshawa. But that line was invested in to be able to do multiple kinds of big yeah, vehicles. I remember that. So what yeah. happened with that? And again, to me, this seems less about technology and more about bad management on General Motors' part. Well, I think that's an important part of it. I find I think the new factor, you know, the the bailout was what seven or eight years ago now. Yeah, the new factor is Trump. Trump wouldn't stand for uh, the rejuvenation of a a plant uh, um, in uh, Oshawa, um, uh, while one is closing in Ohio. So politics is into this. So do you think they will, Donald Trump said the other day that uh, if they're closing the plant in Ohio, they better be making plans to make a new one, uh, to build a new one. I mean, is, is that as easy as it sounds? Or as you mentioned, will, he, will General Motors appease him and just to keep their name out of the headlines and open a plant somewhere? I think your second point is, uh, unfortunately, the more likely. I mean, in, since 2000, what is it, 2006, there's been 16... Um, no, in the last 10 years, there's been 16 new auto assembly lines in North America and none of them in Canada. That's been the danger sign. All right, uh, Peter, I know you have to run. Thank you so much for taking the time. We greatly appreciate this today. For sure, we'll talk another time. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about U.S. President Donald Trump and rejecting the findings of a U.S. government climate change report uh, done by his own staff, his own government, um, and, and basically saying he doesn't believe. The quote is, I've seen it. I've read some of it. It's fine. The Republican president told reporters at the White House. Uh, but he said on severe economic impacts of climate change, he said, I don't believe it. To talk more about this, Robert Orton is with us, Elliott School of International Affairs, George Washington University, and on the line with us now. Robert, thanks for the time. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, many will debate the causes and solutions to climate change, but is it safe to say the majority understand that the climate is changing? Yes, I think most people recognize that, and it's particularly true in places where the changes are obvious, you know, along the coastline in Florida or up in Alaska and the Arctic conditions there. What does the president believe and what doesn't he believe? Because it seems to be pretty vague. He'll, he, he'll stay in the gray area. Right. I mean, he calls his policy America first, but obviously it's Trump first. So I think... What's important to him is, uh, at this point, winning re-election 
and he's focused on that 100%. And so I think that the, the, the ideas about the climate change are really focused on what his core constituency believes is in its own economic interest. And so anything to do with, you know, more manufacturing in the United States, more coal production, things like that, the, the kinds of jobs where people are going to vote for him, he's going to uh, support those kind of things regardless of the environmental consequences. Uh, we certainly know what happened with the GM closures and and his speech in Ohio where he said, don't move, the jobs are coming back, and of course 1,400 just left. Uh, can his base also, who live near those places that you mentioned, uh, can 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 they accept his findings or his his conclusion on climate change? Well, I don't think that they can in terms of their um, economic, their current economic health. But I think uh, the problem that we're seeing in the United States, you know, and one of the reasons why Trump said don't move, is that people are less mobile than they were in the past. They're not moving to where the jobs are located. And currently, obviously, we're doing having an economic, a uh, pretty good economic time in terms of jobs creation, in terms of the health, overall health of the economy. So there are jobs out there. It's just that they're not in the locations where many of these people are living. And so they need to move. They're going to need to move probably to, to keep their jobs. So uh, can, can the president continue to deny that there will be an economic cost to this? when it's his government that's going to have to help these communities get over these, the damages like we're seeing and such? Yeah, the thing is that Trump always figures out, you know, the the weaknesses in his opponent, and he he pushes right on those buttons. And so obviously the weakness for people who talk about climate change is that, well, we're starting to see some of the impacts. You can always ascribe it to some other reason. It's very hard to draw the connection directly to climate change. So, for example, you have all these fires in California, but a big part of the and there's you know there's a lot more fires than there used to be out there. But a big part of the problem, of course, is that people are living in areas where you're likely to have forest fires, and so it's not particularly shocking that you have those kind of incidents. So Trump is always going to play on that margin of uncertainty that people don't really know. You, you know, you can't 100% say that this was a result of climate change. So he's going to play on that and use it to his best advantage. Are people honestly buying that it's that there's more of an argument for forest mismanagement and lack of raking than climate change? No, pretty much everything Trump says is, you know, fodder for the late night comedians yeah. who who cut it cut it apart. So nobody really But more than the late night comedians vote. How is this not even resonating with the base? And I know I'm asking questions that can't be answered. <laughs> but what's your take on because again, you see it around you. I mean, how can you deny it? Right. Yeah, I'm not sure how people deny it. I, I think if they, you know, they, they they see the changes, but they can ascribe them to some other cause. So whether it's you know natural cycles in the in the earth or something like that, um, I think that's how they get around it. And if it's obviously affecting your economic interest, that you know climate change could shut down your business or something like that, then you're going to try and ignore it as as long as possible. But he makes his his. People believe him, and and the argument is that it's the liberal professors in the universities that are talking about this kind of stuff, or it's a Chinese hoax, you know, whatever it is, he's able to turn his base against the people who are talking about it the most and, and 
bringing this to our attention. Uh, as we spoke at the beginning of this interview, uh, many have agreed or disagreed on what approach to take, how to, to how to combat it, what the solution is, and such. Uh, can he keep going down the road of complete denial? No, I think the you know, and the best argument for how to deal with it, how to combat it, the one that's going to resonate the most with Trump and and his base, is that we need to find ways that are economically advantageous in terms of dealing with climate change. So you can see companies like Tesla, for example, that make electric cars are are hugely popular. And, and despite the fact that um, the owner of Tesla seems to be a little crazy, people still love the company. They still love the product. They love working there, even though some of the conditions are pretty harsh. So things like Tesla, I think, where, where you can demonstrate that you can make money by doing things that are environmentally sound, I think that's really what's going to push it forward. And the more of that kind of thing, the more we can show, for example, that solar power is going to be cost-effective compared to natural gas. That's really what's going to push things forward. Uh, again, we certainly remember during his election campaign um, uh, appealing to uh, his base when it comes to coal and, and drilling and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, is this all about sticking up for those states? Um, I think partly. I think, you know, there's been a lot of analysis of what happened in 2016. And the initial take was that it was purely for economic reasons that people voted for Trump. They felt like their companies were getting left behind or they weren't getting the attention they deserved. But now it's more the focus is really on identity issues, that it's more uh, sort of a white identity that's involved. So, you know, there's a mixture of the economic and, and these identity questions. So I think that's what's driving a little bit more of it. So Trump can kind of, you know, pull out the most important things, and, and certainly lately he's been focusing right. on immigration rather mm. than economics. So that that's kind of driving things. Many have talked about how uh, Donald Trump's team surgically won this election by picking up or uh, picking out and up the states that he needed to 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 get a win. Can he run the same campaign the second time as he did the first? No, I don't think so, because I think people now see that his economic policies are not necessarily working for them. I mean, that's certainly true of a lot of the farmers who are looking to build their markets in China. It's probably increasingly true of the manufacturers and the coal miners who realize that regardless of his rhetoric, he's not going to be able to bring those places back. So I think the midterms showed that the Democrats can come back in a lot of these places, particularly in the suburban areas. And so that that's what's going to be driving uh, what's happening going forward. So he, that's why I think he's going to shift away from an economic argument more to this kind of, um, you know, nationalism, immigration mm-hmm. issues, racial issues. Uh, we certainly see that in the Mississippi election that's going on today. It's, it's become purely a, on a, a, a campaign about race. And so that's unfortunate for the U.S. because that's really going to determine the, the um, nature of our conversation going forward. How are countries like China viewing uh, Trump's take on climate change? Well, um, they must be, um, you know, laughing at him. I think certainly in... Because normally he would just point the finger at someone like them. See, look what they're doing, so why should we even bother? It's It's a drop in the bucket compared to what they're doing. Right. But China, I mean, just like we, when I grew up in Southern California, where we had huge amounts of air pollution, China now has the same problem in, in its cities. And, and they're taking, you know, pretty dramatic action to try and reduce that pollution 
get it down to a much more manageable level. Are they doing a better job right now than Donald Trump is, even though they're starting from farther back? They are, because they're focused on the issue. I mean, for them, you know, it's visible. When you have air pollution yeah. and people can't breathe, then you then it's easier to get a coalition together to do something about it. That was certainly the case in California. Now, it's you know, you used to not be able to see the mountains. Now you can actually see them there. So that that's a big change. Um, countries like Russia, though, uh, where I do a lot of um, my own work, they don't particularly believe in climate change either, or, or they think it would even be a good idea because... We would raise the the temperature there a little bit, make it a little more balmy. So they see. It, so you know, climate change is good for Russia. <laughs> wow, exactly. that's frightening. Uh, Robert Orton has been with us, Elliott School of International Affairs, George Washington University. Robert, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Uh-huh, thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of chatter of late in regard to. Obviously, trade, free trade with NAFTA and, and the new deal that, that has been done. But it also brought up uh, chatter and talk in regard to interprovincial trade. And do we truly have free trade within Canada when we're barking at the U.S. about tariffs and so on and so forth? Uh, we all know the story of uh, the gentleman who went to New- from New Brunswick over into Quebec and he bought a trunk full of uh, booze, beer, what have you, and then came back and, and got charged for purchasing in Quebec and consuming uh, in in a neighboring province. So uh, the Alberta government just as upset with Ontario in regard to, obviously, the closed closed system that the LCBO has in the province of Ontario. And what it basically comes down to is in Alberta, you can get a lot more Ontario product than you can Alberta product in Ontario. And the Alberta government is opening a trade challenge against Ontario to have more access to the LCBO. So what does that mean? Is it apples and oranges? Let's bring in Gus Van Harden, associate professor at Osgoode Hall Law School, York University, teaches administrative law, international law, and governance of the international financial system, and is with us now. Gus, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, my pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Scott. So what is the argument here? What is, what, what's the discussion? Where's the conflict? Well, in Canada, there is a, something called, now it's called the Canadian Free Trade Agreement. And uh, it requires provinces in general to allow goods and services from other provinces to be, to be traded freely, to enter a province freely and be bought and sold. Uh, however, there are always exceptions to that principle, uh, and alcohol is one of them that's covered by some complicated exceptions. Why is there exceptions for alcohol? Why is there exceptions for some, not others, and why in this case alcohol? I think it comes down to um, really every government at a certain point wants to protect certain industries or jobs in its province or in its jurisdiction. And it will vary which industries are important in which places. It will vary which governments care about what kind of jobs and what kind of industries. But every government does that. And there's no such thing as complete free trade anywhere. Uh, Under any free trade agreement, there are always exceptions. And one of the exceptions that Ontario has in the Canadian Free Trade Agreement is uh, to protect its... um, you know, its distribution system for alcohol through the LCBO to protect its wine producers. 
And other provinces do similar things. In fact, Alberta is bringing a claim against Ontario, having just lost a claim under the Canadian Free Trade Agreement for its own protections for small small beer breweries in Alberta. So it's uh, it's like trying to sort through all of the different ways in which provinces manage trade, even though they have agreements that are called free trade. But in the end, from what I understand, uh, there's still way more Ontario product available in Alberta than there is Alberta product available in Ontario. Is that uh, is that a, is that comparison justified considering, I don't know, may, and I'm just assuming that Ontario has more producers than what Alberta does? Well, that, that information comes from a press release from Alberta. Now, I have no reason to disagree with it, but I should probably clarify that. In, in terms of this complaint, really the only you know, detailed information we've got at this point comes from a press release from Alberta, and Ontario will eventually respond with its point of view in the dispute resolution process that will be created. Uh, but, um, you, you know, if, if that's true, then it probably means that, yes, at some level, the LCBO is favoring uh, beer producers uh, and wine producers in Ontario to some extent, you know, and to a greater extent than, than those from other provinces. Uh, but keep in mind, from a legal point of view, Ontario has an exception in the Canadian Free Trade Agreement for the LCBO. And it also has some other related exceptions, which mean that Ontario may well be acting within its rights to be limiting access by other provinces, because that was just part of the, the deal that was made when that trade agreement was signed between the provinces. So because the because Ontario has a government distribution system, uh, there's a caveat to all of this. Uh, well, not so much because it has it, but rather because when the the Canadian Free Trade Agreement was negotiated between the provinces and the federal government, Ontario decided to to protect that LCBO system. Right. And other provinces would have probably decided to protect other things. In fact, every province has exceptions for something. And you can certainly see the LCBO wanting to cater more to Ontario product than Alberta, because that's obviously their, obviously their wheelhouse. However, that being said, because there are two totally different systems, the Alberta much more open than the Ontario system, how, how do you make this work? Uh, well, there's another interesting aspect here, I think, is the, the, the Ford government announced in the spring when they were running uh, that they were going to open up liquor sales in, uh, in corner stores and, and grocery stores and so on. If they do that, and I'm, I don't think they've done it yet from what I can tell, but they may have taken some steps. I'm not sure. But if they do that, it may invalidate the exception mm. in the free trade agreement. Mm. So that might be something in the background for Wild Bird is bringing this claim now. I, I can't say for sure at this point because we just don't have enough details. Uh, so how will it get sorted out? It'll probably all turn on, well, what has the LCB, LCBO been doing? Does it fit within the exception or does it go beyond the exception and violate the general principles of, of free trade? And that decision would be made by a panel usually of uh, lawyers and, uh, or maybe like a professor or something. 
that is established under the uh, the free trade agreement. So obviously, the more that uh, an Ontario government um, end runs the LCBO or even the beer store for that matter and creates more options for Ontario, the less uh, the less teeth this would have. Yeah, the more you put in jeopardy the language of your exception, right. because the trade agreement, the, the, the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, was turned into what's called a positive list agreement. Means meaning it applies to everything unless you have a specific exemption. Uh, sorry, it's actually I should call it a negative list agreement. It was previously a positive list agreement. It only applied to what was positively listed, but now it applies to everything unless you have a specific exemption. So from the point of view of protecting something, it's much more dangerous. Right. Uh, now, there's one other thing to keep in mind is, why does Ontario care about the LCBL? One reason is because it brings in a lot of revenue for the government. Uh, another reason is, obviously, historically allowed them to control trade and consumption in, in liquor. Is, let me interrupt there. Is the money a moot point in the sense that uh, they control it, they license it? So, Because a lot of people have said this. You know, the LCBO generates a lot of money. If we dismantle it, we won't have that money, which is not true because it's still the Ontario government that regulates it. So they can generate that revenue other ways other than just through a bricks-and-mortar store. No? Is that I guess you could raise taxes on on private sales because at the end of the day the government isn't going to get a uh, get rid of anything that's generating revenue for itself so again a change from an lcbo system to a more open system isn't going to deprive the government of tax resources is it well, I, I'm, I'm old enough scott to remember when they sold the 407 yeah an injection of cash oh don't get oh right before the election oh you know, don't even go there with yeah, me i don't yep, even want to hear even you talk about it because it's very painful so so wait a sec so are you comparing selling the lcbo with selling the 407 because i don't see that because well, we still control the product well uh well that's a i mean that's a good point we'd have to sort of i i, I want to think about that i'm just saying <laughs> as a, as a no you're right though asset, i hear you i hear you financial asset yep yep you yep. know why not sell it Yep. Bring the deficit down. Yeah. You lose a long term. Well, why did the why did the liberals sell off big chunks of Ontario Hydro? No, same thing. Yeah, you know. So, um, I would come back to though. Part of what Ontario does with the LCBO is support our wine producers and our small breweries here. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, which industry do you want to support, and which industries are going to be upset with that? Right. Right. And in Alberta now, the, the, the NDP government's been trying to build up the small breweries in the last few years, and they've kind of been burned legally because of what they've been trying to do to, to help them. And, uh, you know, the, the United Conservative Party, Jason Kenney, says they're going to get rid of it, all the tariffs and all the, the, the subsidies for the, brewer, the small breweries. Well, they're just going to lose that industry then. And they may have some other, you know, I'm not, I guess it'll be a benefit to consumers. But um, it's a choice, right? What industry do you want to try to support? And don't ever believe that anyone is fully committed to free trade. Mm. Everyone's protecting something, and it's a political kind of negotiation to decide where what where the trade-offs lie. Uh, so the system that Ontario has is it currently the best for Ontario? Not necessarily not necessarily Alberta or any other place, but it's good for Ontario or. If by opening this up, um, or by not opening it up, are, are, we, are, are we losing out on opportunity here? Well, just from a trade point of view, I think uh, the provinces in Canada, myself, I think we need to look more at supporting um, Canadian industries. Now, I'm not saying we need to try to support all of them, 
but to a certain extent, you know, you do your best to pick some winners and go with them so that your economy just doesn't become a complete branch plant economy that's vulnerable to boardrooms uh, far away. And we don't need too many uh, <laughs> reminders of what can happen then in light of the recent news in, in Oshawa. And so um, what industries are they going to be? Should they be small craft breweries? It's not a bad option because what you're doing is something called import substitution. Your consumers are drinking, uh, you know, locally produced beer, which is better for the economy than foreign produced beer, which is generally more jobs. And but what about the beer. local guy that also wants to sell to Alberta? And at the end of the day, can't Ontario, Ontario's industry compete with selling against Alberta? As a Nash from a national point of view, that would be a much better strategy. Yeah, because you could support more competitive um, breweries that were still Canadian. But on the other hand, they're probably more likely to get bought up, and we usually don't stop foreign. We actually have used trade agreements to stop the ability of governments to to uh, block foreign purchases of most companies. So our, our we don't have a lot of tools, thanks to the trade agreements to actually have what used to be called an industrial policy. There are a lot of limitations to industrial policy. I don't think it's the only way, but to come and have the opposite view that all attempts by government to try to support industry that are the industry, ought to be the industries of the future and so on, will create jobs and support communities, um, you can go too far in the other direction too. Uh, do you think as Ontario moves forward, it's just a matter of time before something like the LCBO and the beer store, that the trend continues for more options for distribution? I, my guess would be the present Ontario government is, is eventually going to um, um, privatize the LCBO. Uh, but that's just a guess. Uh, mm. There's been talk about it for a long time. And uh, that what you now, I'm not saying that's necessarily good or bad, but you would potentially lose the long-term revenue if you don't find some other way to tax alcohol consumption. And of course, they've been bringing down taxes on alcohol consumption, so I'm not sure they're going to do that. Uh, but you also um, you lose the buying power, so the LCBO is able to offer a lot more selection uh, than uh, than a smaller buyer could. So you, you would lose that. This reminds me of, of when I was living in Calgary uh, back in the late 80s, and any time you were going to do a road trip to uh, Vancouver or into the interior of B.C., every Albertan said, well, bring me back some kokanee, because you <laughs> couldn't get it there. And it was like, and I'm from the East, I didn't, what the heck are they talking about? And, and to them, it was liquid gold. I mean, is that, is, do we not have the, just an extension of that here? Shouldn't we just open it up? And my goodness, if, if we want something from Alberta, we should be able to purchase it, vice versa? Yeah, in principle, absolutely, I agree with you. But there's always like a trade-off going on. So who's yeah. going to open up their construction sector? Who, what's happening with oil and gas? Oil and gas was actually only subject to the Canadian Free Trade Agreement until uh, only in, I think, 2015. So that's about 20 years that whole sector was exempted. Well, why would that be the case? Somebody had an interest in exempting it. So it, it, it's, it's like, yes, in principle it makes sense, but once mm. the, the devil's in the details, and uh, at a certain point governments do have to make a difficult judgment call about what they're going to you know, what they're going to sacrifice, because ultimately, if you sacrifice something on the ultra free trade, you hope to get something in return. 
and uh, you know everyone's waiting for everyone else to to take the first step. Obviously, everybody wants to support their own local industry, but at what point do we say, you know what, we've supported this? I think it can fly out of the nest on its own. That's always historically been one of the challenges with um, uh, so-called infant industry supports uh, and. Country, some governments have done it very badly, some countries, and some countries have done it very well. Uh, countries like uh, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, originally China now, doing it quite well. And they, they kind of mix it, so they bring in market incentives within the, the public supports, and they require a company to be commercially successful at a certain point in time, and if they're not, then they lose their, uh, hmm. their, their protections. Gus Van Harten has been with us, Associate Professor, Osgood Hall Law School, York University, teaching administrative law, international investment law, and governance in international financial systems. Gus, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, and uh, have a good rest of the, the show today. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have talked at length uh, in regard to the fentanyl crisis, uh, not only in Canada, but uh, pretty much across North America. And we've talked a lot about uh, how to combat it and, uh, and, and kits and, 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 and injection sites and things that are needed to manage this. But we're really not, we, we haven't talked that much about where it comes from, who's profiting from it, who is fueling uh, this trade. And there's a great series, uh, which you can now find on uh, globalnews.ca and, of course, on Global News 530 and 6, Fentanyl Making a Killing. And this delves into various aspects of the fentanyl industry and how it has got to where it is today. Uh, the, the current uh, article, which is on globalnews.ca, fentanyl kings in Canada allegedly linked to powerful Chinese gang, the Big Circle Boys, uh, Stuart Bell, Andrew Russell, all involved in this, as well as Sam Cooper, and he is with us now. Sam, thanks so much for the time. National online journalist, investigative reporter for Global News. Sam, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a fascinating series because, again, it seems we, we've talked a lot about how to react to it, but not getting to the root of this. Uh, talk about the objective of this series and what you're trying to do. That's right. Well, we set out with a, a pretty basic question, and that was, who is getting rich off this fentanyl crisis? And we know that most of the overdose deaths are not coming from the prescription fentanyl that, that is coming you know, from doctors. It, uh, it's coming, police tell us, and uh, coroners tell us, from transnational gangs. We found that out. We knew it was coming from organized crime. But really, in the past, uh, I'd say, under two years, police are saying that organized crime, crime is just uh, exponentially increasing their, their grip on this market and pushing more and more of this drug out. So we dialed in even further than that. We wanted to know, in Canada specifically, who are the kings of this trade? And we found that it is indeed Asian organized crime that's directed out of China. Uh, specifically, a gang called the Big Circle Boys is the most dominant player. They've been running the heroin markets in Canada for about 20 to 25 years. And within the past five years, they've found a way to really balloon their profits. And that is by using synthetic heroin, essentially fentanyl and carfentanyl. So where does this come from? What's the production line? What, where is it manufactured? How, does it, how is it processed? How does it get from point A to point B? 
Right. The supply chain is, uh, for various reasons, this Ill- the illicit uh, trade starts in factories in China that, for various reasons, are, are unregulated. There's a booming area called the province of Guangdong in southern China, massive factories, uh, extensive shipping networks, and the gangs have found a way, whether they're using factories at night or they own factories through corruption, to uh, to put them to the the work of producing chemicals such as NPP, which is a precursor for fentanyl, and these chemicals, uh, as most well people are finding out, fentanyl it comes in tiny grains. So these these uh, these chemicals are produced in China. They come across to Canada, North America, in various ways: shipping containers, postal packages, and then the drug is uh, pressed up in pills in drug labs many of them in British Columbia. That's the supply route. And then when the drugs are sold in Canada, the gangs find ways through underground banking to send profits back to China and uh, do the cycle again. If that is shut down, and I'm, I, don't mean, I don't mean to make this sound as simple as, as what I'm saying, but if that avenue is shut down, does Canada still have this problem or is, that it, is, is it as severe as it is now? Absolutely. If you could find a way to shut down the the flow of illicit chemical precursors for fentanyl coming from China, the the overdose crisis, police believe, would essentially be over. We'd still have some problems with addiction, with uh, prescribed fentanyl and uh, OxyContin and and drugs like that. But absolutely, it's it's organized gangs, organized crime that is driving the the overdose crisis. And if you took them out of the mix, which is tremendously difficult, we wouldn't have a crisis. Does China know this is going on? Do they care? Is it as big a problem there? China, from all the, uh, the literature and research, whether it be from uh, U.S. economic study groups, uh, law enforcement agencies around the world, China doesn't have the same overdose or, uh, or addiction problems with fentanyl and similar opioids. However, their factories are making a lot of money creating these, uh, these precursors. And there has been some, uh, some efforts, you know, at the international trade level to get China to uh, ban certain chemicals. But the people, you know, in law enforcement say, really, there's a lot of lip service going on, and mm. they just don't believe from the perspective of North America that, uh, that China is really taking seriously shutting down this deadly chemical trade. So they're poisoning, China's poisoning others, but not their own people. How do they keep their own people off this stuff if this is the, the center, the nerve center of where it's being manufactured? That's a great question. I would think that uh, I haven't studied the answer, but I would think that it, it could go towards, you know, the greater level of um, state control in China. If you're a, an addict or a problematic person in China, you're going to be treated a lot less kindly than you are in North America. You're not going to be talking about supervised injection sites, I don't think. I mm. think you're going to be talked about uh sort of uh, erasing you from society. If China really wants to deal with a criminal problem in their country, uh, they find some pretty uh, heavy-handed ways to deal with it. So they would deal with it a lot more heavy-handedly than we would, but is their problem as bad? I mean, is this stuff leaking out there? Do they find themselves in crisis? All the research that, that I have read is that China doesn't have 
anywhere near or, or perhaps even a, a crisis of any extent with illicit fentanyl use. So they're producing the product. And uh, as we see the, the crisis growing in the West, they don't have the same medical issues or addiction issues in China. So it's a very stark divide on that. Point. How do you explain that? I mean, you know, okay, is it just North America's attraction to illicit drugs? That's a very difficult question. I mean, we've had our people that have uh, watched the news for a long time know that with South America and, and Mexico, we, we've had our what they call wars on drugs in, in the United States, whether it's cocaine, we've had problems with crystal methamphetamine. And I mean, it's almost a, a philosophical question, but I really do think that uh, North America is a more open society. So people are given some latitude to 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 experiment with drugs and we've seen that now um marijuana a softer drug has been legalized so perhaps uh, at some level the the user is a problem in north america however the police would say um the enforcement in in especially in canada just isn't there does china care if north americans are dying from this stuff not our problem. You know, if your people are stupid enough to get hooked on this crap, that's your problem. Uh, we have a society where we don't do that. Well, that is, those are issues of um, diplomacy and uh, really hot-button issues with international trade, I believe, right now. So if, you ask, uh, if, you, if I were to ask the people on the front line, some of the police that have been uh, dealing with heroin uh, in Vancouver's downtown east side for 20 years... I think some of them bluntly would answer to you, no, um, at, at, at various levels, China does not appear to care. They appear to be making money. Uh, their own citizens don't appear to be suffering. And yet uh, bad things are happening uh, across the water. And that's that. Uh, we've talked uh, for years about the real estate market in Vancouver and how it has gone through the roof and, and uh, measures that government has taken to try to cool off things, even Asian investment. What is the relationship between the Vancouver real estate market and this industry? Well, in, our, in the first uh, installment of our series, we wrote a story revealing that we had obtained police data, a secret police study, was, con- was recently completed, they looked at, they knew there was a problem with uh, casino money laundering and real estate money, money laundering just from the, the files that they're pursuing, but they wanted to quantify that data. So they studied in 2016 uh, over a thousand real estate transactions in very expensive homes in the Vancouver area, and they found uh, 10, over 10% were, uh, the, of the buyers were connected uh, or had criminal records. Further than that, 95%, according to the police intelligence, was connected to what they see as organized crime linked to China. So when you look at that uh, and you see the massive price growth in Vancouver that has occurred at the same time when the fentanyl crisis has taken hold, at the same time, when casino money laundering in government casinos in BC has gone on an upsurge and you graph those together, I think we can say that there's a very good relationship between drug trafficking in BC, fentanyl, and uh, real estate price growth. And the the end result of that, analysts say, is that the people that are uh, driving the affordability crisis are the same ones that are profiting from the sale of fentanyl.
So can you say, Sam, that the reason, one of the reasons the prices are where they are in Vancouver is due to money laundering in the fentanyl industry? According to my, uh, according to my own research, when I look at someone that bought a home for $7.5 million in 2011 and then took out uh, tens of millions of cash loans from organized crime lenders, and then sold it five years later for a $14 million price gain at $22 million. I'm going to tell you that's proof that drug money is moving prices higher in some areas of Vancouver, yes. This is huge, Sam. Is government police officials, are, uh, they're certainly aware of that. Are, is anybody doing anything? Is there any action that can be done? From the, the sources, again, in law enforcement, they believe that... Canadian laws are weak in comparison to, for example, uh, United States or Australia, where federal police, especially in those two countries, are working very closely together and aggressively combating uh, international organized crime. Uh, Australian and U.S. police also have more operations inside China, where they're trying to work with Chinese police to shut down fentanyl factories. But Canada doesn't have those same resources or strategy. And so that's the reason from the people that I talk to on the front lines why Canada is failing. Um, You know, we've certainly heard governments uh, make adjustments and and try to alter what's happening with the housing market in uh, in Vancouver. Uh, Is this barking up the wrong tree here? I mean, what's the sense of having policies on on uh, Asian investment if if this sort of thing is going on, I mean, is this not the bigger fish to fry? Well, I would agree that um, you're looking at various streams of money. As one of our uh, urban planning analysts put it, there's black money. That would be the money associated with international drug trafficking. And there's gray money. So one thing we know is that a lot of money coming from offshore, especially mainland China, into British Columbia has to be coming through underground banking channels. In other words, uh, if you're uh, a Chinese wealthy person, you're only allowed to export $50,000 in U.S. currency per year from your bank account offshore. So people need to use underground banking, and underground banking involves organized crime. So whether you're a gangster moving money out or you're a legitimate business person that um, may like the schools in Canada or uh, the lifestyle, in some way, you have to move your money out of China in, into Canada or the United States using underground banking. So that the issues are interrelated, but the study that we looked at uh, established that it looks like there's a solid 10% directly connected to that black money on very high-end real estate in Vancouver, and there has to be a lot of gray money as well. And then when you mix that with the legitimate money from whether it's Canada or around the world in the banking system, you've got what one of our analysts called a a toxic financial sausage or financial fentanyl for the real estate system. Wow. Who is moving here from China, and can they bring their wealth with them? They can't, can they? No, under China's laws, there's certain, uh, certain high barriers to getting your wealth out of China and into another country. You can do that through legitimate businesses or applications to the government or one way that it's done we know is that let's say you want to get 500,000 out of China into a down payment in Vancouver, Toronto or Hamilton 
you're going to get 10 friends to move that 50,000 or 49,000 out, and it's going to be recombined in a bank in Canada. So those are the ways. Some of them are uh, very criminal. Some of them, maybe uh, people would call them gray markets. And uh, some of them, if you really uh, work hard, you can get your money offshore in a legitimate way. But it's not easy if you're, uh, if you're from China. Only the wealthy from China that are doing this? In Vancouver, what what has been seen is that uh, there is a very, in, in recent years, a large amount of ultra-wealthy immigrants have have uh, moved to or applied to immigrate throughout Canada, whether it be Quebec or across uh, across the country. But many do, and many very wealthy Chinese do end up in Vancouver for various reasons. Are you confident the government of the day has a handle on this? Well, the government of the day in British Columbia has taken quite large steps compared to the previous provincial governments in trying to crack down on some of the uh, opaque ways that money flows from offshore into real estate. You can give them credit for that, but I don't think they have a handle on uh, the the transnational drug trafficking we're seeing here, the fentanyl flow into BC. And when you, why would I say that? The evidence is that if we have uh, BC's life expectancy dropping for the first time in decades, directly related to transnational drug trafficking, it's very obvious that society is going in the wrong direction. So no, they don't have a handle on it. And I don't believe at this point, the federal government has a handle on it. I don't believe uh, the RCMP does as well. After reports like this, though, uh, Sam, does it not become obvious to everyone? How can how can they what's the response been from this report? Have you heard anything from government on it? At this point so far, the the response from uh, our readers and viewers across Canada has been very encouraging. Uh, people were shocked to see, first of all, uh, the level of money laundering that we've been able to establish through our reports. Uh, that is something that governments are studying, but we uh, at Global News in our investigation, we've been able to move that file forward and say, this is the problem that, that we're dealing with. Whether um, whether we can be confident that governments have, are coming together to deal with a sort of a cohesive strategy, that, it's still unknown. For example, I, I, I asked Bill Blair, the minister who's been asked to look at the opioid crisis and money laundering in B.C., if he would commit more federal police to, uh, to the province of B.C., if he would put up the funding. And yesterday he wouldn't commit to that answer. Uh, does he agree at least that there's a problem and that, uh, you know, what you what you guys are saying in your report is something that's very serious and, and has to be investigated? Absolutely. He's uh, I believe he acknowledged that uh, they, they have seen our reporting. They're starting to look at it. I don't believe that people in government even knew about this secret police study that we obtained. So I believe to, at some level they're scrambling to see what they can learn about the, the, the information we've uncovered. But we're in very early days. Uh, we know that uh, Mr. Blair says that he, he trusts that BC's Attorney General is already looking into these matters. But again, uh, we'll see next week as we after we publish more stories and reveal more information.
Uh, fascinating report. Uh, Sam Cooper has been with us, national online journalist, investigative reporter for Global News, and the series is uh, Fentanyl, Making a Killing, and runs right through into uh, Monday, December 3rd. You can find it on uh, Global News and, of course, globalnews.ca. Sam, fascinating work. Uh, congratulations. Good luck. I uh, can't wait to see the end of it. Great. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.